Very excited about this week's podcast. We're going to talk about when winning matters, lessons learned from elite sport. And with me is Stephen Bird, Associate Professor of Exercise Science. How are you, mate? I'm great. I'm looking forward to unpacking some of the theories that we have in when winning matters. Oh, who doesn't want to know about that? Let's rip in. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent, or manage any injury, disease, or other health-related condition. Welcome to Body Science HQ, the world of fit, happy, and healthy. And this week, I'm going to add on the end of that lessons learned from elite sport. And it's all about when winning matters. Like it's your book and Stephen's come on board to talk about sport. He's very rarely do we get to get an insight with someone who's in elite sport. Everybody wants to play in that area. And not only have you had your fingers in that playing the game, you've also got those fingers back out and written a book when winning matters. So, and you've dropped the second line on there, lessons learned from sports elite. So do you want to, before we start, do you want to jump in and just tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll we'll rip in. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think I have a, a little bit of a different story where people look at, you know, my work within academia in the university setting and and that was something that was never really on my radar. Like I left school at a very young age. School was an inconvenience to my sport and then applied like for that. several jobs along the way, you name it, you know, institute of sports, professional teams, all of those opportunities and would always receive the lovely we regret to inform you letter okay. because I didn't have a university degree. Uh, the long story of that was some 13 years later, I had the opportunity then to go to university 13 years. Uh, from leaving school at 15 to go into university when I was 28 and then was able to complete an undergraduate degree, an honours degree in chronobiology and then my PhD in sports nutrition and exercise endocrinology. So when I get now the opportunity, which I love, is to go back to my previous high school where I left at a young age and, and talk to what they would call the challenge students, that school might not necessarily be their main focus right now. And it's great to go back and, and have opportunities to talk to those students and those you know youth of today about, man, you're learning never stops. It doesn't, it just might take a different direction. Yeah, I love that. I truly love that. Mate, what was the big thing that changed you from being a terrible student at school to suddenly being able to, because universities and, and going on to do your PhDs, it's a fairly rigid structure. Yeah, absolutely it was. And look, at at, uni- at school, at high school, my number one thing was sport. That was it. I was there to play sport. And when I was actually in year 10 doing work experience at a gym, and you will relate to this, no doubt, that was back in the day when gyms were gyms, leg warmers and G-strings. What a wonderful place to be for a 15-year-old. Just let me sit back and reflect on that for a second. I'm Just old. Take I've a got moment. that picture in my Just head loud and clear. Exactly. So back then it was, you know, a lot of these gyms were run by bodybuilders, martial artists, boxers, yep. people that were unreal at their trade as in their sport or their discipline, but maybe not the best business people. Uh, so I was doing work experience at a gym and into that work experience, the gym owner came up to me and, and said, uh, look, would you like a job here? Uh, so as any, you know, good 15-year-old, I raced back to my mum and said, they've offered me a, a job at the gym, but I think I'll stay at school. And my mother said, why do you want to stay at school? And I said, well, I want to be the youngest open boys footy captain at the school. And my mother had said, that's probably not the best reason to stay at school. Uh, take the job. So wow. I left there and then. Uh, wow. You know, my no school certificate, no HSC, started working at the gym. And I'm talking about, we're doing everything. I'm vacuuming floors. I'm cleaning mirrors. I'm cleaning the urinals. I'm learning aerobics. I'm learning martial arts. And that's where it all started. But I always had this inquisitiveness around training. You know, how can you make yourself perform better? And just ended up, you know, really being drawn to athletic populations, like-minded people that wanted to succeed and was training every athlete that I could think of. And that all came to a head in 1998 at the Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, where Australian boxing was the first time taking a trainer with them to the games. At that point, 
point, I was actually training four of an eight-man Australian amateur team with their strength and conditioning work. They were calling for a trainer. I thought, geez, I've got to be in with a show here, right? I'm training half of these guys. And once again, received a lovely, we regret to inform you letter. Yep. So that was the impetus. That was, okay, if I really want to pursue this and, and make, as my father would always tell me, um, and find your passion, make it your profession, and you'll never work a day in your life. Love that. And so that was that was the moment. And at this point, I'm 28 and... You know, I've been, yes, doing fitness courses and whatever you could along the way. But now you're talking about going to university. And so I did. So I, I went to, to Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, had a meeting with the head of the program, Professor Frank Marino. And he set me down and said, uh, look, mate, we're going to give you a shot, but it's going to be a challenge, right? You need to, to put in some effort. They had an associate student program, mm -hmm. which meant you pay upfront in full for four subjects. You're not enrolled and you do all the work. They'll keep your grades. And if you show, you know, an aptitude, then they'll offer you a spot. So, so that was the moment started and i'll never forget it first lecture three hours anatomy and physiology professor marino was taking the, the lecture and it was three hours on the skull wow apparently there's a few bits in there that we need to know about so i was very much how am i going to remember this how am i going to learn this so i had to to work with a lot of different people a lot of support to work how do i learn the best so what strategies helped me retain that information and then i was fortunate to finish my undergrad then go on to do a, a research degree in chronobiology and then uh was awarded an australian postgraduate award to do my phd in what ended up being sports nutrition amazing what a great story so look it's i think the the thing that you find as you as you go through that journey and i think whether we're talking athletics where we're talking semi-pro pro where we're talking corporate everyone has a different journey to get to where they're going and i think it's that's the defining difference and as we get towards the book and when winning matters the the title of when winning matters is a little bit of a wordplay uh, as you'll know when you get to the end of the book it's you'll realize that it's not about what's on the scoreboard it's about those individual victories that you win along the way to help you become the better best version of yourself possible yeah nice and did the book come from driven by your time like did, did athletes bring you to the, the the same thinking process you went through like i really need to tell people about this it's it's not the two points for the week it's not the scoreboard like did you like you watch all these docs that are coming out on jordan and lots of, there's lots of them out there and you look at each of these people and you go that guy was different to everybody else and is that what caused you to go down the path of a book was there a turning point that went to you putting pen to paper yeah look i, I need to give a shout out to the co-author Rob Beveridge he Rob, Bevo and I have, have worked together for over 10 years and uh, the, the story behind that was I just finished a, a year at the Penrith Panthers uh, with a research program in restructuring their fatigue monitoring and recovery management protocols in 2012 mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a research group within there doing the work it was uh, Matt Ryan was the head of performance at that stage at the Panthers and that was going well we had, were fortunate enough to win a significant research grant to continue the work on and then uh, as it does in elite sport a change of sponsorship uh, with another university and then I was unable to continue with my association with the university that we received the grant so here I was with some significant funding and, and no team to continue the research oh, wow. I had just been asked to fly over to, to Perth to assist with basketball WA with their youth program and I mentioned it to uh, a guy there Brett Coxedge who I'd worked with as the high performance manager at the Western Region Academy of Sport for 10 years he I said mate who do you know at Frio or, or, or one of the teams over here West Coast Eagles and he said don't worry about that I'm going to sit you down with uh, with Rob Beveridge he's the head coach of the Perth Wildcats and uh, and we're going to have it a chat with Bevo. Uh, I met I met Rob that night. We had a chat. 
which ended up being all night and half the next day. And within that organization, and we'll talk a little bit about the Perth Wildcats shortly, but within suffice to say, within 48 hours, I had a written contract to then look after research and innovation with the Perth Wildcats after that meeting. Um, so those organizations where they value those add-on benefits to provide the best environment for their athletes, uh, they just get things done. So I've been with Bevo for, for, for 10 years. So we had that program there. I then, uh, Bevo arranged for me to work with the Townsville Crocodiles as the head of uh, performance in the NBL, then moved on from there to to assist Bevo with his his role. He was head coach of the Illawarra Hawks for, th- for three years. Uh, throughout that time, Bevo was then given the head coaching role for Scotland basketball at the Commonwealth Games. Okay. Uh, so then I, w- I was fortunate enough to work in that program with him. So it's, it's one of those things, as you know, in elite sport, you a lot of staff end up and follow coaches. Yeah. And when the coach moves on, generally some of the staff will, will probably move with them, so yeah. to speak. And so through COVID, when the COVID situation started, you know, I'd, I'd always been chatting to Bevo going, I think, you know, we collectively, we could share some really positive messages in, in a book. COVID hit and I said, okay, this is the time. Let's, I want to take what we can now and try and make that resonate into people's lives based on all of these principles and what we do to create successful environments with elite sport. We can apply this and hopefully the readership will resonate with some of that things within their life. And so we went and, and met with the publisher in the February and we had the first complete draft uh, in the June. Uh, and wow. then and then in the July, we had it off to print. And then in the August, we had it released. So once we had decided that this was the path we were going to go, uh, both Bevo and I put in some time to to get the book done. That's that's amazing. Like it's, uh, I've spoken to a lot of authors. It normally doesn't roll quite as cleanly or as quick. Are you a natural? Just, I, look, I, I'll be the work? first and my wife will tell you, uh, I, I do have a little bit of uh, OCD with, with, with things. I'm yep. very... Uh, goal oriented. I need you have a plan. To be good <laughs> I have a uh, I have a mind map on the wall yeah. uh, with with things that need to happen and how they need to happen. And I was fortunate that. And you know what it's like, Greg. You often end up being drawn to people similar to yourself with whatever you're putting out in the world. You, you end up around. You know, you're in business. You've got the best staff in the world, and that's not by accident, yeah. right? Uh, so then, when when Bevo was the other partner in this venture to write the book, we both were sort of pushing each other pretty hard to to make sure that the end result encapsulated all of the experiences that we've had, you know, four Olympic Games, World Championships, World Cups, Commonwealth Games, Asia Cups, Southeast Asian Games, those environments. And it's not a book that's about coaching. It's a book about different principles. And when we've gone into a particular environment, what was the one principle that we had to try and employ within that environment and then, you know, create a successful environment for the team and the structure that they were using. So, and we can touch on some of the particular chapters, but some of the chapters that resonate the most at the moment with a lot of our work in corporate world now revolve around a chapter which is called the one percenters that count. Uh, that chapter's received a, a lot of interest across the board, and we're workshopping that chapter pretty pretty hard at the moment. I believe that's the note when you sent the book to me. The note was, make sure you read this chapter. So, look, let, you've brought it up. Let's talk about it. What, what does that mean? Look, I think everyone is familiar with the concept of the one percenters, right? Now, I can tell you, though, what people are not familiar with is where that concept actually arised. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone just thinks about sport when they hear that, but it actually was in the, the early 1920s, and uh, you're talking about Chicago, Bikey gangs. There was a, a a lot of unrest in that time, and it came out from the American Motorcycle Association. Actually, put out a press release saying that it's you know ninety nine percent of the bikers out there are really good, but there's this one this group, the one percenters. <laughs> percenters, is that right? And that's where the term actually comes from, right? Wow. So way back when from the American Motorcycle Association. However, now it's linked to 
success in sport that's yeah. the defining difference the one percenters that count and uh and with our experiences with bevo we've you know look th we're talking thousands and thousands of athletes that we've had the opportunity to, to be a part of their journey and when we go back and we, we looked at doing a thematic reduction of you know what those athletes told us were the most important one percenters that they perceived to make a difference to them when we went through all of that data there were seven key themes that came out of that data yep but interestingly the top five were all psychological based strategies is that right so when you look at everything that's out there you know the sports elite have identified the five most important factors that they deem to be the one percenters that count for them and they're all psychological based strategies from things like as, as simple as goal setting and we'll unpack that a little bit but you know you're looking at goal setting you're looking at mindfulness you're looking at anchoring you're looking at self-reflection um, and you're looking at self-regulation so you look at those types of areas they're all psychological strategies to help athletes and they all are linked predominantly to an athlete's ability to cope under pressure. Wow, that's really interesting. Was there a lot of crossover of those five between athletes as well? Like yeah, look, usually there, there was. And then remiss of me, the other two to make up the seven, uh, sleep was, yeah, you know, ob much. obviously, and uh, and recovery. And uh, it was great listening to the previous podcast with Clint talking about our um, our recovery points checklist. Uh, and that's been used extensively at the moment. So we, we established that in 2006 with Indonesia uh, for the 2008 Olympic Games with the Indonesian team. And then we're able to publish that in 2011. And uh, I, you know, I'd I'd encourage the listeners to just Google the recovery points checklist and you'll find a thousand different versions of it out there. But I think that's, uh, we've used that successfully across multiple teams and it seems to be a, a staple now of most high performance programs will have a recovery checklist of some some description. And mate, before we'll put that on bodyscience.com.au forward slash podcast and check the uh, When Winning Matters podcast out to find out the link for that. So, but will that work for an individual who, you know, getting back to the one of the things you talked about earlier was personalization, indiv mm -hmm. individualization. I think it's the word you use. Can I grab that checklist and look at it myself or do I need to be part of a team for that to come to play? No, not at all. It's 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 an individual thing. Uh, we have different types. So the, the initial genesis of the recovery checklist was the 100-point weekly recovery checklist. Now, when we designed that, that was purely designed and the key word here that I use a lot is context. Yep. All right. So in the context of the Indonesian Olympic team, we had athletes that were, their coaches had a, a significantly high training volume philosophy. So our goal was to use this as an educational tool where we challenged every athletes and you know what athletes are like, Greg, they're, they're very much, uh, give them a challenge and they, they like to see the, the, their name on top of the leaderboard yep, and all that exactly. sort of stuff. So, uh, so we made it pretty simple and, and we challenged them to accrue X number of points per week. We looked at all of the recovery strategies that are available. We looked at the efficacy of the strategy. So, you know, did it actually provide a, a physiological or psychological benefit for recovery? And then the second factor was how proactive was the athlete in actually to employ the strategy? So the strategies that have slightly more points accrued to them uh, have high levels of, of efficacy and probably slightly high levels of proactiveness from the athlete. Yeah, but we're talking about, and that was where we started, and we've got versions now that we use in sport that are 24 or 48-hour recovery checklists. So for example, with a 24-hour recovery checklist that we're using at the moment with Basketball New Zealand uh, players, they have to accrue 12 points in the 24 hours. So and it may be that you know sleep, if they have sleep extension strategies or achieve eight hours of sleep, um, they'll accrue three points. If it's they do a um, hydrotherapy session, which is an active modality, they might get two points. If they just wear compression socks, they might get one point. So the idea is based on the training that the person is going through, whether it's it's rec, fitness, semi-pro, pro, depending on their level of training, they would look at accruing X number of points throughout the day. And that's fairly generic across the board because the idea, 
what we're trying to instill in these athletes is a structure and a routine in order to make recovery a part of their day. Yeah, nice. Just stepping back a bit, you, you first mentioned this recovery protocol came out when? In 2006. So you've just told us what your current one is. What, what were you doing back in 2006? <laughs> well, it was the, some of the, the modalities were similar, mm-hmm. but the main difference was we took a weekly approach given, as I said, in context, athletes, extremely high training volume. Yep. So we took a weekly approach and they had to accrue 100 points. So pretty much on average, we're looking at 20 points a day. And those nominal weightings for the points were what varied. So for example, if they were able to accrue, you know, when we had six hours sleep, we have a lot of the athletes over there and particularly through through Ramadan, for example, they might not get necessarily high quality yeah, eight hour sleep. Um, so there was different nominal weightings. So some of the weightings were 15 points, some were 10, some were five. It's just over time, we've tried to align it specifically to the, the context of the current environment. But every team we work with at the moment, and, uh, and once again, shout out to, to Bevo. He's you now coaching over in the New Zealand NBL with the South on Sharks. So they've just qualified for the final four next weekend. And and we use this with them. So those players, and I can you'll be able to see on my phone, those guys will be sending in their surveys today of their yeah. recovery points. And uh, how, we, how we gamify the results in the visualization strategy, we find really useful for the players uh, because there's no... We, there's no holding back. Oh, you you accrued X amount of points. All of the data is there for the players to see. And then what we find is that level of accountability in the senior playing group. Like we don't have to chat to the players about, man, you're, you're slightly under your recovery points. You know, we wanted 12 and you got six. You know, the way that the Bevo has his programs, those senior players will hold those other the other players accountable to ensure that they meet their minimum standards. Because one of the things we talk about in the book is your minimum standards become your highest standards. Yeah, nice. So we need to look at what are those minimum standards and where are we actually setting that bar across the group. Nice. Do you find it? Do, do you see any correlation between the 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 physical and the mental side? So if you see that someone's not you, okay, say I'm a traditional, I get my I get my twelve points, but I'm coming at you with eight regularly now. Do you, do you see a correlation to that to stepping in with other? areas of i mean obviously you've got your team management part but when people are on the i don't want to use the word mental health but when yeah. when stress is playing its part in life because life's way bigger than game day do, do we see the correlation like is, is this a red flag that you you use in that space yeah as well? definitely and and that's a really a really good point and especially given the context of where we are right now in the COVID environment and you know for us the recovery point system is one and and the first thing on i'll come back to your, your main question in a second but the first point with that is we encourage athletes to use multiple strategies mm-hmm. so what we we ask the athletes to try and avoid is just going to their favorite right and just doing that so we talk about four particular categories so we talk about muscular recovery we talk about neural recovery okay we talk about uh, psychological recovery um, and we talk about substrate recovery so there are our four key areas for recovery and what we would like the athletes to do and this is where the education becomes really important is we educate them on the recovery modalities that fall within each of those recovery areas so ideally we would like them to try and use one recovery modality from each of those different areas. Now, depending upon the athlete, when they do their general wellness questionnaire of a morning, and this is the part where it's quite an old cliche, right? Nobody cares about what you know until they know how much you care. And an athlete environment, it's so indicative of that. We can have the best programs in the world and work really hard to engage athletes in these strategies. But if they don't think that you care about them, like they're just going to shut you down. And athletes are the best at smelling the BS, right? 
like they are the best. So, and you've been in environments, Greg, where you've seen athletes and if someone comes in and it's like, I, I, my analogy would be, you know, talking to a car salesman that knows nothing about cars. You can smell that a mile off. And athletes, you know, they have an, a very uncanny knack of knowing if you're fair income, right? And I think that's a, a, a big part to it. From our work recently, we've spent a lot of time with an international collaboration in the United States, Canada, Spain, and Belgium, where we're actually researching a lot at the moment on sleep and the impact of COVID in athletic environments. We're fortunate to be invited to, to write a, an article, a blog for the British Journal of Sports Medicine on sleep and COVID in the NBA. Uh, and that followed us publishing a paper in the, the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, which was a little bit controversial because the, the title of the paper, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, was an urgent wake-up call for the NBA. Uh, at the moment, there's- Was that a, the title of the article? That was the title of the wow. article. So you can imagine it was, you know, that's sort of putting a little bit of a bit out there that could be seen to be a bit controversial, yep. right? But the best part of that paper that I'd really encourage the listeners to look at is we have a section in there called the player's voice. So this is not scientific data. This is not running, you know, controlled studies. This is what the, the athletes are telling us how they feel. Now, you go and speak to any elite strength and conditioning coach and they'll say, hey, we can go and do every fitness test available and end up with all of this quantifiable data. But my number one thing would be to ask the athlete, how are you feeling you today, feeling? mate? Yeah. What's going on? How's the wife? How's the kid? Those sort of questions, right? And I know if I revert back to the Penrith Panthers, when we started there with, with Matt, one of the first things that were changed was, okay, how many of the, how many of the players in the playing group, the, the 25, have kids? How many of those that have kids are under three or under five? So with our sleep box, those guys get priority because the chances of them having a good night's sleep is probably going to be you know interrupted more so than the other guys. We have player X, his girlfriend, and he they're just having their first child. Do we have a support structure around them to help with the anxiety of, of having their first child? So it's that care Amazing. factor around Amazing. the athlete where we find we get the best buy-in and buy-in's built on trust, mm -hmm. right? So you know any successful business, they have the ability to create trust within their organization. And do you see those strategies being, like you mentioned before, that you do, you do a fair bit in corporate world? Is that same theory you just talked about then being pulled into corporate in a strong way or is it still a fight to get um, us employees to think like that? Not with the good organizations, yep. right? So, And I think that's the defining difference, right? There's the best of the best. They look for opportunities to be critiqued, to find ways to make their performance. And we talk about performance globally, whether it's corporate sport, to make their performance better. And the better organizations, they're willing to invest in that critique to find out how they can do things They can do things better. So corporate world is, is really opening up to that. And there's a lot at the moment around the philosophies around elite sport, the philosophies around being a winner. What are the things that drive athletes to that extreme to be able to be so focused in what they're doing? How do they situationally reframe moments that could be seen as, oh, things are going bad. I've got that snowball effect. It's not going my way. But actually flipping that and, and, and situationally reframing it to pull the positives out of that to actually make it a good experience. So in the corporate world, I think that's that's the difference between you know the good organizations and the others is they're prepared to take their critique and and move forward. I love that. Hey team, it's Greg from Body Science here. The Hydroxyburn Shred is back on shelf. It's our new therapeutic, has all the taste. And if you're looking for a better thermogenic, we've really pushed for the pursuit of a better thermogenic. Full disclosure on the labeling. What do we mean? Caffeine levels have changed. We all know the rules have changed. The ingredients have changed. The claims have changed. We have a clean label with premium quality ingredients for you. So what does that mean for you? You can look at things like metabolism, energy, sugar metabolism, fat metabolism, cognitive function, thyroid, and just general health and well-being and it's all on the label if you're taking a fat burner now and it doesn't say it on the label have a look at it and go why get on board
from your learnings with Bevo, and obviously he was a forward thinker, like you've, you've really put that out there. Mm-hmm. Let's talk, n- not the budget to run these events. I don't want to talk about that because that's no one's business, mm-hmm. but you've got a sports budget. You don't, it's not unlimited. People think elite teams have money. They don't. They have very, very tight budgets these days. Of course. How did you two possibly go to a board and say, we want to start monitoring if someone's upset at home with a young child under three? Or like Because obviously the first thing is uh, looking back with time, I've been doing this for 22 years, mm. strength coaches were pretty hardcore dudes back in the early days. You know, they'd done the hard yards, probably an ex-player. And, you know, S&C has changed so much. In absolutely. The like it's, it it's an has. absolutely, completely different field now. How did you, as one of the pioneers here, actually go to a board and say, I actually want to take some money or I need more money because we want to do this? If you look at anything and we start with corporate, the number one thing that you, to make your organization successful, obviously you need to employ good staff. Absolutely. And you need your staff to turn up. Yep. That's so your, thing. your level of absenteeism is one of the KPIs that you'd be looking at yep. in relation to sales, promotions, whatever. So if my, if my staff is absent, they're not here, there's a direct cost associated Absolutely, with that yep. absenteeism. So if we look at sport, if I've paid for the top 25 players in, in the league and yet 10 of those guys are injured and they're absent, well, that causes issues with continuity with team members, bringing in new players. And so that was one of the things that we looked at with, with the Penrith Panthers, right? So we, with the, the research we did with the Penrith Panthers, with changing their fatigue monitoring and recovery systems, we looked at the optimal number of players for them based on where they finish on the ladder. So anytime the Panthers would use 29 players or less, guess what? They finish top six. Every time they use 30 players or more, guess what? They finish outside the top eight. Is that right? So we start the year, we started, they used 33 players in 2012. Then it come down and down to 29 in 2000 and what's that, 13, 14. That 2014 season, they made the, uh, the major preliminary final, one win away from the grand final. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying it's causative that if you just use less players, you are going to make the grand final. Yep. But we do look at associational analysis. So how much does one variable account for change in another variable? And what we were able to show was that um, around 75% of where they finished on the ladder, their position where they finished, 75% of that was accounted for by the number of players they used. So two thirds of where you finish on the ladder is accounted for by the fact of whether you used more or less players. And so if you look at where that comes from, Craig Bellamy needs a lot of flowers thrown his way for for what he does with that organization. Now, with Craig in particular, I was fortunate enough to be there for, for three months with a research project with the, with the storm in 2008. And everyone looks at, at Craig and when he goes over to Europe, he doesn't go to AC Milan or Juventus or Man U to see what they're doing in the gym or how they're training. He goes over there to say, how do you manage your players through you know the UEFA Cup Series, through the Premier League, through how do you manage your group and the better teams, the teams that constantly finish top four, they're just better at managing their playing group. Greg, some learnings in that. Everyone, like you've been around the sport as long as I have, everyone lifts, everyone is in the gym, everyone's doing speed work, everyone's doing video, everyone's doing film, right? Everyone's doing, they're all Yep. training to some capacity, how many ways can I do a different power clean, right? There's variations, but essentially it's the same thing. Mm. So they're all doing the same, but the teams that regularly finish top four use less players and they're better at managing their playing group. Now, holistically, that's where we've moved in modern times. What's happening psychologically, socially, physically? Where are we with those those particular areas? So, and we talk about that in, in, in the book and I was fortunate enough to be the head of performance at the Northern Pride for, for a couple of years uh, when Joe O'Callum was the coach and then Ty Williams. And that was one of the first things we looked at doing. In the previous year, the uh, the Northern Pride had used 35 players. And when Joe had spoke to me and said, I, I want to look at this high-performance unit structure and I want our squad to be a structure that would 
be very seamless in moving into the Cowboys. So we, we had a lot of consultation with the Cows and looked at the structure. That next season, they used 25 players, the least used in the ISC that next year. Once again, I'm not saying it's causative, but they've gone from using 35 players the year before with no high performance unit, no focus on monitoring and recovery management. And there's some luck involved in that, of course, no question. But you don't go from using 35 players one season to using 25 players the next season without some type of intervention. It's amazing. It's amazing. Do you see that those learnings that you've you've got in place there? And, and I'll, I'll just step on the corporate field again if mm-hmm. I can. Of course. If corporate gets into it, it means we get more money that funds everything and growth. And obviously sport is where that plays out because corporate sponsors sport. Where are we at as a nation compared to the overseas trips you just talked about in relation to monitoring our staff? Look, there, there was a period there where it was, it was all about what was happening overseas. And if you go back, and, and I'd strongly recommend David Martin, who used to be the one of the, the coaching staff in performance with the Philadelphia 76ers. David Martin was at the Australian Institute of Sport for like 20 years, a lot of work in cycling. And then throughout that period of time, there was this transition where what we were doing in Australia through the Australian Institute of Sport was seen as world, not world-class, but seen as world-leading, where everyone overseas, if you look at anyone in, in England at that stage, they would be going, in Team GB, what are they doing in Australia? We need to look at what they're doing. And then we've been through that now with so many Australians who have ended up overseas, whether that be working in the NFL, at the moment, there's a multitude of Aussies working in the NBA. So they're all saying, okay, what are they doing over there that's different to what we're doing here? And for everything else, even education, process, structure, money, all that sort of stuff. I think the one area what we do well as Australian strength and conditioning coaches and performance staff is that we do have the ability the ability of individual self-awareness as a person. And that translates into building relationships and trust with the players. And I think for any aspiring early career strength and conditioning coaches, any students at university that want to get into elite sport or corporate, you need to be able to develop those relationships and come across as being a trustful person. Simon Sinek in his book, The Infinite Game, he writes about the Navy SEALs. And when they went through that transition of low performers, moderate performers, or high performers, initially it was to become a Navy SEAL. We want the highest level of performer we can get. That's it. And then when they went through and had a look at, okay, well, hang on, he could be the highest level of performer, but he could have the lowest level of trustworthiness amongst his peers and group. That fit is not going to happen. So when they went through that, he talks about the, the trust performance continuum. And they would much rather take a moderate level performer that had the highest level of trustfulness versus the highest level performer with a moderate level of trust trustfulness. And so that's the change. And I think that's where you're able to create buying because buying is built on trust. And if you're looking at, well, that's what the Navy SEALs are doing and how they're trying to have an impact on trustfulness and performance, that's where we're at. And it, and just to digress, like I didn't even get to answer your question about when we go into a corporation or a, an organization and say, hey, we want to invest this money into this program. But the first thing is around the return investment right like and that's the end of the day and that's where we go in there and say okay this is the plan this is the program these are the kpis that we have this is the structure we're going to we're going to run with we're going to do that for a period of time and then we'll reassess as opposed to coming in and saying well we're going to do use x you know system x because of my opinion and we all know about opinions right they're the same as other body parts which we all have right so you can't go in there with an opinion you need to go in there with a structure and a framework and that's where in the book yet again we talk about the last chapter is uh is your championship blueprint where we talk about 
about frameworks of the most successful organizations. So pop quiz, Greg, right here, right now. We're going to put Pressure's you on the spot. On. Put you on the spot, man, right here. Here it comes. So sporting team that has the most consecutive playoff appearances worldwide. We're going global. Which team do you think has the most consecutive year after year after year playoff appearances? Give me a team and a sport. You should be able to work that the sport from the team, I would assume. Um, is it basketball? Yes. Is it the Bulls? No. No, okay. Well, should, should I help him out here? Yeah, or what? please do. Okay, so the previous, the previous winner of that award was the Green Bay Packers. Okay. Now... It is basketball, and it's an Australian team. Is that right? Perth Wildcats, the most consecutive playoff appearances. You know what? You've actually told me that before. I have told you. I know. That's the way you're looking at me. I'm going to slap him. I know. I'm telling you. Bad student. Bad, bad. (laughs) Didn't read the notes when you wrote them down. So jot them down. But once again, so if we look at the Perth and Wildcats. And they've got travel. That's what we talked about, the travel the, side of that. Travel exactly, side of yeah. Thing, right? And that's what we said when when I first started working in Perth. Uh, if you're an athlete and you want to live in Perth, the one thing you need to be able to do well is travel, yeah. right? But their organization, everybody is aware of their values and their mission. But what the Perth Wildcats do really well with that is they attach those two things to what they call their non-negotiable behaviors. And that's the biggest part of the whole the whole thing. If we can't get any attachment to the value and the mission with a non-negotiable behavior, it's sort of pointless. It's, you know, it's like and, saying to- who, who runs that accountability? The players, the players, or the people, is, is it a coach? Is that a coach call? Like, yeah, I think like every coach will have their own yeah. view and opinion on what they, how they think that should look as far as that goes. I know with, you know, and I can only comment on my time there with, with Bevo and, and then the, the next year was more of a research year. We're looking after research components under Trevor Gleason. But that first year, Bevo's thing was he had a series of pods, all right? And those pods were where he looked at player development. All right, so we had a senior player group that looked after a pod, and within in that pod, they would actually have some junior players, and that pod would run down vertically. So there'd be one leader, which was a senior player, with two or three junior players. Collectively, they would come up with the team values, and then following coming up with the team values, the coach and others would come up with, okay, what is the behavior that aligns with that value? And let's look at the simplest team value that gets thrown around the most, and that is commitment. Yep. Right. I want commitment. Okay. What does commitment look like as a player? So for us, we look at the non-negotiable behaviors that align with that team value. So a non-negotiable behavior is first in, last out. That's a behavior. So you're going to turn up first to training and you're going to leave last at training. You're going to do the extras that you need to in the middle there somewhere. The next one is purposeful practice. So not only am I going to turn up to training, but every action I do as soon as I step on the court is purposeful. Accountability. While I'm on the court doing those purposeful actions, I'm going to make sure that I'm helping to hold others accountable within my group. So straight away, we've looked at aligning three non-negotiable behaviors that are in alignment with their value, which is commitment. So making that attachment, which I think everyone's, every organization will have a mission statement, they'll have values, they'll have those things. But unless there's a non-negotiable behavior behavior that links to those, it's very hard to instill. And everyone at the Perth Wildcats from the front office to the people in the concession stand, to selling the jerseys, to the players, to the coaches, to the assistant coaches, to the performance staff, they all know what the values are and what are the non-negotiable behaviours that that organisation require for them to be successful. That. D- does that get reset with new coaching? I would assume so, yeah. yeah. Look, and, it's, and it's very individualised, right? Like, you know, any any coach that comes in and takes over will have a different structure, a different set, and um, th- there's nothing that's right or wrong. It's, it's very individualised with 
every coach. What I can say is from my observations is the teams that do that really well, there is a definite link to non-negotiable behaviors within the group. Oh, I love that. We did our values with the team. We got some psychologists in and did a whole lot of split the teams up. Didn't matter what division you worked at, what job role was and went away and they grouped us and swapped us in and out and stuff. And after about three months, was it Ash? Four months? We uh, came up with the values that were written by the team. And that's why I was asking you that, you know, how often do you reset that? Because obviously we've had some staff turnover since then and all of those course. type of things. And That's life. That, it's, that yeah, it's all on. handbooked and it's all it's on walls here and stuff. But yeah. you're right. It's that, that those accountable, like the, the, you, this one, cannot play out any different to what this is. And I, I really, I'm interested that I'm going to, uh, chapter, was that you in your book with Al? <laughs> you have to, you have to read that. So chap, 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 chapter 10, He's not telling that me anything chap, after me following my first exam question. Unreal. I know. Yeah, go but, on. Uh, but back to the trust thing. And from an organizational perspective, we know as, as an employee, sport, corporate, whatever, the one thing you want is you want to be trusted, yep. right? And you want to feel like your contribution Absolutely. is meaningful. Those two things, irrespective of the domain and the organization in the corporate world that show that their staff are trusted and show that their contribution, giving them some autonomy to make meaningful contributions, those organizations, the staff work in the organization, stay for longer years and contribute more hours. Like, and it's, it's, it's that trust thing, right? We all want to be, we all want to be heard. We all want to be trusted. We want to be seen that what we're contributing is meaningful in some way. So if you can mesh that in there, you'll end up with some, some really solid pillars for any organization. Right, I love that. So if people do want to find you how do they find you so any socials you uh predominantly uh, linkedin mm-hmm. uh, so i'll do some work on LinkedIn. look i'm not i'm not a huge socials guy a lot of my stuff as you'll see is, is reposting things that are, i think are, are meaningful and of interest but any of the social thing the website is spb international so spb international just a dot co dot co yeah yep. so no m i get a lot of people saying i sent you an email and i'm like i didn't get it and they put dot com not dot co but if you just google spb international you'll find mm-hmm. uh, you'll find that and yeah happy to take any questions from uh from from anybody that wants to talk shop around, you know, what's in the book, how we how we decided to try and leverage the book to be meaningful in the current times. Like our goal, and we've been asked this on a lot of a lot of different mediums, you know, what was your, what was your goal for writing the book? And it really was we just wanted to to have people read a book and for whatever time they were reading it, escape, right? Use it as a way to escape what's going on in their life, what's going on in the world, and then try and align some of their personal circumstances to what they're reading and so that that's the biggest thing when we get feedback where people have gone oh i read chapter seven and i'm the one percenters and, and we actually I, I can i can relate to that we do this but that's the kick we get out of, of where we're at with the book at the moment so so it's one part of uh, of what we're doing the other areas with the research and the high performance work with basketball in new zealand the asia cup's coming up so we've got the asia cup in september with the the tour ferns and then hopefully the girls will finish top four and then we'll will qualify for the World Cup, which is going to be hosted in uh, in Sydney next year. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So Australia will be hosting the World Cup for basketball for the, for the women. So uh, that'll be great. Let's finish up with the book. Where can we get it? Uh, so on the website, or you can just Google it and you'll find it online, Amazon, all and of the usual Googling places. When Winning Matters. When Winning Matters. Just yeah. punch in When Winning Matters and Stephen Bird and you'll find where it goes or just go straight to SPB International, the products page on the website and you'll be able to see it on there. Not any audio version? Uh, look, we've, we've had a discussion around the audio version and that this stage was something we're going to we're going to look at probably next year we'll see how we go with with audio version 
our thing at the moment is we're unpacking some online learning modules that go oh, with the book. Cool. Yep. So with the with the corporate world at the moment, what we're trying to do is align an online learning module. So for example, the one percenters that count, the the staff and the organization would do that online learning module before we would then turn up to workshop the actual the actual chapter. So yeah, that's, that's the next clever part. to have people doing that before that you turn up because most people are getting you to do things after after the fact. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. that's that'll be the next thing going through. That's awesome. So when winning matters, lessons learned from sports elite. Stephen, it was awesome to have you on. I've been a massive fan of yours for a long time. Mate, it's been a while. I can recall Filex, I don't know, I don't know how long ago, uh, quite quite a long time ago because the, the listeners may or may not know that uh, my PhD was all work around intra-workout subs. So that's where that whole thing come from in 2006 when we we've conducted the first lot of research on uh, intra-workout supplements. Uh, so way back, in the, way back in the day. So so we've shared some history for some time. Mm, okay. Friday out there, what's the scoop on intra-workout subs? Well, once again, I think when we looked at doing the research initially, it was the fact that here's a time, which is usually during the workout, where nutrient status becomes compromised. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of a lot of subs around pre and post, but nothing during. So we looked at uh, a six six uh, percent carb solution, six grams of aminos, just as a, a essential uh, essential amino mix, and we had some significant changes in muscle cross sectional area. So these guys were able to stick a, a six mil Bergstrom biopsy needle into their thigh, so about as big as the pen that you're holding. That'd be nice. Smack it in their thigh, pull out. We're going to go very Oof. technical now, so pull out a little bit of muscle, and we we spend all this time and effort and energy, and end up with this little thing that looks like a piece of snot. Um, <laughs> and then basically we freeze it and then we, you know, you go to the deli and they slice the Devon. Yep. So yeah, we stick it on a fancy machine like that, slice it very thinly, about 20 times thinner than a piece of hair. We then stain it and then we can have a look at the cross-section of each of the type A, you know, the 1A, the 1B, the 2, 2A, the 2B fibers. So we can look at those and then uh, and then determine whether they've got bigger. So we were able to do that. Now, the athletes that took the placebo or they, they uh, consumed just a six grams of aminos or a 6% carbs or they got the good stuff, which was the common combined group, the aminos and the carbs by themselves had a very similar increase in muscle fiber size. But when we combined them, they actually had a, a much greater increase in, in fiber size. So between the insulin factor with the carbs, we've got the aminos going into the system, obviously turning on some of those downstream molecular signals for, for mTOR and the pathways that create new protein within the body, uh, that, was, uh, that seemed to be the ticket. So Amazing, amazing. Way back when. See amazing. how we go. But hey, we're going to give a shout out. Dr. Mac, he needs to get on to you. <laughs> he's, is he alive? Yeah. Mate. He's alive, is he? he he's got to be. He's uh, one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. He, he is a good bloke. So, yeah, indeed. And you two working together at the moment, aren't we you? We are. So, so Dr. Mac is uh, the head of school at the University of Southern Queensland, and I've actually started there recently. So, we've got quite a few projects that we want to look at doing uh, as far as that, as that goes and talk about some potential research and uh, see what we can do with some of the products and provide a bit more science behind Mate, who's funding sports science research at the moment? Look, it's a tough gig at the moment. Yeah, it it is a tough gig at the moment. I think initially it was a lot from from industry, right? Wanting to see different things, whether it be, you know, vibration platforms, whether it be things like uh, velocity-based training software. Those organizations were keen to actually have a look. And once again, I think it comes back to the organization themselves, whether they're prepared to invest to see whether the product is actually usable. So, but it's a hard gig. Mm, it is. It is. We're obviously, with the world heading towards more TGA in sports nutrition versus food, I think we'll see that change a fair bit in the future because when people start realizing how hard it is to actually put a claim on a therapeutic product, it's absolutely. A lot of work. Yeah. yeah, indeed. And I think, and we we always, you know, everyone talks about the first food policy and in sport and especially in you know major competitions. You know, so for me, as as the head of performance walking into an organization, the brands that we deal with, I need I see that whole trustworthiness thing. So I need to be hundred percent sure what's on the label is what's in the mm. product. And and as you know. 
that's one of the the reasons why we've you know we've tried to to look at being very specific with you know with you guys and the brands that we actually recommend to our athletes. So grab the book when winning matters. Like Steve said, he'll answer all his emails he gets. <laughs> He's got, he's like you've got to, a lot of spare time, mate. Someone needs to uh, put in a question. So, hey, we're going to stick a copy up, leave a copy here. Yes. If someone wants to jump on the, your social media uh, with the Body Science and put in a question, yep. uh, we'll choose the best question and we'll send them out a copy of the book. Did you sign it? Wow. Yes, you, I did. You did. Oh, you both did too. Yeah, Bebo, wow. actually. Yeah, wow. Bebo's it's on there. Double well. signature. You got two there. Keeper. Two, two for the price of one. Nice. So, uh, this will go up in the next couple of weeks. We'll get it out there and run the little competition. Thanks for coming on board, mate. It was great. No worries.